Early in the morning of September 7, 1970, an aircraft was rolled out of the hangar at the National Aviation Facilities Experimental Center near Atlantic City. It had been transported there secretly on the flatbed of a truck from Redline Airport with copies of the Trenton Times newspaper taped on to conceal its markings. Someone who saw it en route had called McGuire Air Force Base to ask about the big orange saucer. But it was not a saucer. The 27-foot-long aircraft had a pointy nose, a wide flat tail, and a propeller attached to a tiny engine, and no wings. Author John McPhee would describe it like this. It had a deep belly and a broad arching back. Seen from above, it was a delta. From the side, it looked like a fat and tremendous pumpkin seed. And on that day, the pumpkin seed would fly. It's forgotten history. I'm Dickon Hyatt. I'm Joe Omansky. And on this podcast, we discuss obscure and fascinating stories from Central New Jersey's past. This is the third episode, and uh, we've got some great feedback on the first two episodes. So thank you, everyone who listened and who commented. And uh, we do want to hear your comments, so send us an email. We just made an email address for the show. It's ForgottenHistoryNJ at gmail.com. And we also have the Facebook page, Forgotten History, so you can just look that up. And uh, also, please subscribe to the podcast for future updates on your favorite podcasting program. Uh, Today's story is about the Ariane 26, which is an extremely weird aircraft that was made by a Princeton company. And it was test flown in the early 1970s. But the story of the Ariane actually began way back during the Civil War, and the ending is not quite there yet. It's... uh, the history is not over. <laughs> we also have something different in this episode. Uh, what we want to do in the show is not just talk about historical things. We want to interview people who were there firsthand, if we can. And in this case, we do have an interview with the test pilot of the Ariane 26, and we'll bring that in later in the show. One other note is that the show is a lot less obscure than it might have been thanks to John McPhee, who, if you don't know him, he's a famous author based in Princeton, and he wrote a series of New Yorker articles about the Ariane 26 that were published in 1973 and later became a book called The Deltoid Pumpkin Seed. So a lot of the information we have about this comes from that book, but a lot of things have happened since it was published that do change the story quite a bit, so we'll talk about that later. But definitely, if you want more information about this, check out The Deltoid Pumpkin Seed. It's a great book. Okay, so the story really begins way back in 1862 with a guy named Solomon Andrews, he was a doctor, and he was also the mayor of Perth Amboy, a man of many talents, and he was a brilliant inventor. He had patented a sewing machine, um, some gas lamps, and his most successful invention, which was a combination lock, that he boasted could not be picked. And among his other talents was he was a brilliant publicist because he came up with this amazing promotion for this. He locked $1,000 in a safe at Broad and Wall Street in New York City and left it there for a month and said anybody who picked the lock could have the cash. And so people tried for a month to pick it, and no one could. And as a result, the lock became a huge financial success for him. Like, they they put it on bags at the Postal Service. So this is what year now? This is 1862. So $1,000 in 1862... Or it was even before that. I think I think this was in the 1830s that this... He the 1830s. The so yeah. $1,000 in 1830... Is in today's dollars twenty three thousand seven hundred and eighty eight twenty four. 
Yeah, well worth your time to get it if you could. I would say. The Postal Service started using it on their mail sacks, and a bunch of banks used it. So he basically got rich off of this lock. And he used the money to build his greatest invention yet, which was an airship. Um, and then the word Arion, he called it the Arion. And that came from the Greek for age of the air. And what it looked like was it was these huge three cigar-shaped balloons, each of them about 80 feet long, with a little tiny gondola underneath that only came up to his knees if he stood up in it. Now, he wasn't the first person to build a balloon. Like, there were tons of balloons at the time. But the problem with the balloons is they just go where the wind blows them. So what he wanted, tried to do was make an airship that could go in any direction, even against the wind. And he had to do it without an engine, because the only engines at the time were steam engines, and they were way too heavy to fit on a, on a balloon. So the way it worked was it was constantly ascending or descending. And it would kind of zigzag through the air. Like if you imagine you put a board on the bottom of a pool with one end of it higher than the other and you release it to float to the surface, it's not going to go straight up. It's going to go toward the direction that's up, <laughs> that the front of the board is up. So by releasing ballast and releasing gas, he could go up and down and zigzag through the air, which is kind of ingenious um, if it actually worked. Uh, the only accounts we have of it are from journalists which was not, like, completely reliable in the 1800s. So, I, I mean, I have no real reason to think that it didn't work, but you never really know for sure. Well, people are still doing experiments like this, right? Like the guys who tie three helium balloons to a lawn chair and then just take a ride. <laughs> yeah, he was basically like that, except he, uh, he was, like, the first guy to do it. So, you know, hats off to him. So he built it, he, by 1849 he finished it, but he didn't fly it. And I couldn't figure out why he, he didn't fly it. Uh, maybe he uh, didn't quite have faith in it. So fast forward a few years later to the Civil War, and it's a full swing. And Andrews volunteers for the Union Army as a surgeon. And he ends up going to a place in Virginia called Harrison's Landing on the James River. And it so happens that the Union's Balloon Corps is also stationed there. And that was the like one of the first ever attempts at using balloons in military use and they would have hydrogen and fill them up and they would just they'd be tethered and they'd float up and look at the confederate troops and and had some limited success but he saw these stationary balloons and he said hey i can do better like i could this would be so much better if i could fly over the enemy and then come back and report what i saw like we'd be able to get so much better information so he actually wrote a letter to abe lincoln offering this invention but he never heard back from Go Lincoln. <laughs> so he, he, he went down the chain of command. He went to the Secretary of War, who basically blew him off. And then he decided that since he wasn't getting any traction, he was just going to do a test flight to prove them all wrong. So on June 1st, 1863, he flew it over Perth Amboy. And he made a series of test flights and continued to tinker and continued to pester the government about the balloon. But he had a hard time getting anyone to take it seriously. Uh, but he did get some notice from the press, and he got a journalist from the New York Herald to come look at it. And this is what the New York Herald wrote about this invention. A plan for utilizing the atmospheric ocean, the air made navigable, a successful voyage into the Blue Empyrean, marvelous performances at Perth Amboy, a flying jerseyman above the clouds, Boreas defied by the Arion. So that's a hell of a headline. That is, I mean, you could do worse. The story goes, A gentleman from New Jersey has mastered the theory of interplanetary navigation. 
By his aid, we shall be able to bridge the rainbows and go picnicking at the height of Mont Blanc. All right, wait a minute. We're starting to get <laughs> another picture of this. Very soon, if his hopes are realized, we shall have naval battles in the air, assignations in the clouds, evening sails above the foliage of the park, and airline railways with stations in the treetops. So, uh, he yeah, it goes on like this and about how great this thing is. You have to admit, like, the the picture of watching uh, uh, a couple of soldiers, a blue a soldier and a gray soldier, fighting each other in gondolas, dangling from balloons. Like, I mean, that, that would have to be amazing. Like, like, just the duels that they could, the aerial duels that they could have, that would have been awesome. Well, you know, interesting you should say that, because eventually, after they saw the Union balloons, the Confederates built their own balloon. They had to um, get uh, women's silk dresses to make the material, so they gathered like silk dresses from all over the Confederacy, and uh, they uh, they were going to fly it off a barge, but the barge got captured by the Union before it could. Uh, Imagine before having it could balloon be used. envy, like looking up at the <laughs> other side's balloons and being like, "Man, those! How did they do that? Those are better than our balloons." So eventually, uh, Solomon Andrews did get. Joseph Henry, secretary of the Smithsonian Institute, to hear him out. And Joseph Henry gave him enthusiastic approval and made a report to Congress saying to Congress, we should do this. But before anything could come of that, the war ended. And he built a, he, he decided that there could be civilian uses for this. So he built a second improved prototype, the Ariane 2. And he started a company called the Aerial Navigation Company. And his plan was to fly passengers between New York and Philadelphia. And he made a number of test flights in the Ariane 2, and with more journalists reporting that, you know, he flew it over New York City, and the crowd was amazed, and uh, it was really cool. But unfortunately, there was an economic depression after the war. So starting an airline was not going to happen, because the bank that was funding him went bust, and then his company went bankrupt. So that was the end of the first Ariane, but the dream lived on. Didn't get that much better uh, commercially for the Ariane uh, 100 years later. But. Well, after the break, we'll talk about what happened next. Mist is in the trees, stone sweats with the dew. The morning sunrise, red before the blue. Hanging at the mast, waiting for command. His Majesty's airship, the R101. She's the biggest vessel built by man, a giant of the skies. For all you unbelievers. And we're back. As it turns out, Andrews was not the only person observing the Union Balloon Corps. Another one was a diplomat from Germany. It was a guy by the name of Count von Zeppelin. Hmm. So Zeppelin may have even had some conversations with Andrews, and obviously with the name Zeppelin, you know, he traveled back to Germany, and he developed airships there, including, of course, the Hindenburg. Which has New Jersey ties, obviously. Uh, yep, it was based in uh, Lakehurst, New Jersey, which is, well, that, that was where it landed, and that's actually not far from where the rest of the story takes place. Landed, you say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it did land successfully a few times. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, That's so, right. They weren't using helium. I said helium before, but I guess they were using hydrogen. Yeah, which is a lot lighter <laughs> and better than helium for airship purposes, but has a few drawbacks that that people eventually realized. Just a couple. 
as it happened, you know, because the Zeppelin base was in New Jersey, there was a number. There were a number of people here who worked in that industry and got some unique skills that sort of became useless after the Zeppelin travel stopped. Mm. The next part of the story takes place in the 1950s, after the Arion has been all but forgotten with a Presbyterian minister named Drew Monroe. He was pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Trenton. And he was a forward-thinking guy. He had started this thing that he called a teleprayer service, where you would dial in a phone number and you would get 30 seconds of prayer. And he got 15,000 calls a day on this thing. And Monroe had read about Solomon Andrews' airship, and he became obsessed with bringing it back. He wanted to create a modern version of it. And his vision was of what he called a faith fleet. And this would be a giant fleet of airships that would travel all around the world. And they would go to these far-flung places where there were no roads and where there were no airships and where there were people who were just waiting to be converted to Christianity in these remote locations where no plane could go. And he talked about delivering 50 transformers to the Voltaic Republic a t- hundred thousand Bibles to Nigeria, a million peaches to the Haute Katanga. So they bring not just missionaries, but civilization. These ships would be a thousand feet long, and other than missionary work, he thought they could revolutionize cities. You'd get on your giant blimp in the morning, you'd be in a container, and the blimp would fly over the city, and it would lower the container to the ground, and you'd get off and you'd go to work. A thousand feet? Yeah. It's three football fields plus. <laughs> he no says, ambition. He says, I envision new cities built around this type of aircraft. It will render obsolete road and rail connections. Today's helicopters can lift nine tons. We'll stick nine tons in the corner. (laughs) No shortage of ambition. But it was just a dream. But one day he went to a funeral. He went to do a funeral at Andrews Air Force Base. And there he met someone who could help make his dream become a reality. And this guy's name was John Fitzpatrick. And he was a former blimp pilot for the Navy. He had set a world record flying a blimp. He flew it 9,000 miles without stopping to refuel. That was a world record for any type of vehicle. Sure. And this guy also believed that airships were the future. He would fly his blimp into storms just to prove that they could do it, and they would come out the other side coated with ice. (laughs) And he would say, you know, no plane could have ever done that. plane would have crashed. Uh, These things can fly when no other thing can move. And people like him had a nickname. They were called helium heads because they were always trying to get the Navy to go with blimps instead of airplanes. So ironically, Fitzpatrick was not a fan of religion. Um, And here's a quote from the deltoid pumpkin seed. He says, In the study of higher mathematics, you can sense it. You are finally hearing the language that man and God can understand. Scientists and engineers are the true priests. These are the men who have given us the tools to dominate nature, to reach out to the stars, Practically everything that is noble in man has been given us by these men of mathematics and science. The church has failed us totally. Not a match made in heaven for these two. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was kind of ironic that they, they, they had teamed up, but they did, they did work together. They both had faith in airships. That's the interesting thing. They kind of had like religious fervor in what they were doing with the company. And it's worth noting that Fitzpatrick was a self-taught engineer who came close to getting a degree. That's how they described it in the Delta Pumpkin Seed. So in 1959, Drew founded the Arion Corporation and began to raise money. And Fitzpatrick began to build an aircraft called the Arion 3 at Mercer County Airport. And the actual construction was done by a guy named Everett Linkhofer, who was an airship rigger. That's not a common skill. No. But they found a guy who was an airship rigger. And 
especially considering that you know this had a frame on it and at this point there were like no one had built a rigid airship in you know since the Hindenburg basically but somehow they found the guy with the skills by 1965 it was almost done and there are photos of this thing and it looks like a high-tech version of Solomon Andrews airship you know the original one had these three gas bags and this one had these three zeppelin shaped holes but they were made of advanced materials. They were lightweight. They were strong. As was maybe foreshadowed, they had a, there was a little bit of a conflict between Fitzpatrick and Monroe because Monroe wanted it to fly by the zigzag gravity power, and Fitzpatrick wanted to put an engine on it. Fitzpatrick went out, and they did put a sideways helicopter rotor on the, on the end. The heat from the engine was going to heat up the gas inside of it to give it more lift, which was, I thought was kind of an interesting idea. So it had two pilots who would sit in the cockpit. The cockpit was at the front, way up in the nose, not like a gondola. So this thing actually looked really futuristic if you look at it. It looks pretty cool. Yeah, I think I'm looking at a picture of it here, or at least... That's in... that's Solomon Andrews. Okay, yeah. that's the original. Yep. So that's like three giant gel tabs flying through the air mm-hmm. with, uh, <laughs> with a gondola suspended by many, many strings like the Brooklyn Bridge in reverse. Yeah, and know how um, small the guy is compared to the guy. Yeah. He's like standing up in it. And oh, right. It yeah. only comes up to his ankles. It's like a, it's like a cat litter box. It's, <laughs> it's a little bit almost pathetic, but that worked. Um, yeah. And there's the thousand foot long Arion, I think. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, my goodness. See, that's the thing, like one of the things that's maybe hard to picture for this is that we're talking about airships and things but they really were especially as we get to the area on 26 like this is a wider bodied uh machine uh, that that we're working with here mm-hmm. this it was actually not a pure blimp or zeppelin this was a hybrid airship meaning that it would get some of its lift from the gas and some of it from aerodynamics so in theory this makes it easier to control than a, a pure lighter than airship which one of the main problems with them is that they'll be blown around by the wind. Right. So the plan was to demonstrate the principle with this Ariane 3 and then eventually build a version that was 1,000 feet long and 1,000 feet wide and could just carry a whole fleet of Mack trucks in the belly. By 1966, they're finally ready to test this thing, even though they're starting to run out of money. So they decided we need to go do a trial right now. So they start off by just driving it on the ground. Easiest thing in the world. Taxi trial. They taxi it out onto the runway of Mercer County Airport in Ewing. And they get to the end of the runway, and they're turning it around when, just then, a strong gust of wind came at just the wrong moment and blew it over sideways. One of the pilots jumped out while it was flipping over, and uh, the other one jumped out after it landed on its back. The pilots were not hurt, but the airship was completely destroyed. According to the deltoid pumpkin seed, they bulldozed it back into the hangar, (laughs) and it arrived in smithereens. (laughs) <laughs> not the way you want to start. Uh, no. So, and as if that were not bad enough for Arion Corporation, some of Monroe's fundraising tactics had got the attention of the SEC. Okay. So the SEC was investigating the company and penalizing it. Eventually, this investigation resulted in Monroe being kicked out of the company. He had to sell his stocks. And that actually turned out to be a good thing because they brought on a new president, William Miller, who was a lot more practical. Oddly enough, Miller was also a Presbyterian minister. That is odd. 
Yeah, and he was born in Iran, where his dad was a missionary, and he was somewhat more practical-minded. He was a former Navy fighter pilot, and he had gotten rich in the stock market, but he was bored of stock trading. And so he became interested in the Arion after he saw a picture of it on the desk of a stockbroker. Yeah, you know, I'm bored making tons of money. <laughs> I want to fly a triple blimp. Yep. Uh, <laughs> That's what I would say. So Miller and Fitzgerald start from scratch, and they start test-flying these models, but they can't get any of them to work. And they build a four-foot model called the Ariane 4, and they test it at Lakehurst, where the Hindenburg crashed. It did not fly at all. But Miller is a Princeton alumnus, and he had all these Princeton connections. So he found a guy named John Kukan from Princeton University, and this guy worked for Princeton's aviation program building models. Another person with a unique set of skills. He yeah. was this model builder. And the Delta Pumpkin Seed is great because it really fleshes out this cast of odd characters who formed this company. And he was like an expert um, model plane racer. He won all these medals in model plane racing. And he invented this special fuel that would help him win races that he could only use once because it would destroy the engine of the plane he put it in. Anyway, so... You know, he uh, he gets this model builder to help him build better models, and then he finds this German engineer named Jürgen Bock, who's a physicist, and they decide to come up with a totally new design for the craft. So they go to the General Electric Space Center in Valley Forge, where they have a computer, and they plug in the characteristics they want this thing to have. They want it to have as much volume, internal volume as possible to hold lifting gas, but they also want it to have the shape of a wing, and they needed to have a compromise between the two. So they spit, they put this into the computer, and it spits out the deltoid pumpkin seed shape that I described in the beginning, the hybrid of a plane in the airship. And Miller called an aerobody, and he would correct anyone who would call it a plane. Now, what what year are we in now? This is the late 1960s. Okay. Kukan builds them several models of this thing. They start test flying them. Like, Kukan has radio control... And everyone else is in a, a Buick, and they're driving it along a runway, and he's trying to fly it. And they do get it off the ground, but every model that they make is hard to control and ultimately crashes all of them, and they're all destroyed uh, and run over by the car and various disasters. So at this point, there's Miller is spending his own money to keep the company afloat. The way he's described in the book, he's almost like a monk. like He lives all by himself in an apartment off of Route 1, but they had decided that they learned enough information from the test to build the full-scale version, despite them all crashing. So Linkhofer goes back to work on what would become the Ariane 26. And they had to build this thing on an absolute shoestring budget. So the structure is built from the wreckage from the previous Ariane. Uh, the landing gear used bungee cords to, to work. The canopy was from an old glider. And the pilot seat was from a crashed plane. There was a two-seater plane where the pilot was transporting a can of oil in the passenger seat. And as he was landing, there was some turbulence, and the oil flew off and struck the controls and made the plane crash, and the pilot died. And they took the seat where the oil had been, and they used this for the pilot seat for the Arian. This is described in the deltoid pumpkin seat as a junk collage, which I think is fair, because uh, Linkhofer couldn't even afford the proper tools to do the job. Like he was cutting metal with a wood saw. And they had some old propeller that they found to propel it. And yet for all that, like if you look at a picture of that one, it does look it looks kind of futuristic also. Yeah, it really does. I mean it's 
and and like you said at the intro, like if you look at it from the side, it almost looks like a wingless plane. But then if you get a, a vision of it, I described it earlier today as a as a A wing fighter. It's got <laughs> uh, this. Yeah, it's got a spaceship-like body, really. I mean, what else can you say about it? It looks like a Dorito that's been inflated. <laughs> yeah. That, uh, what's the terrible ones, the new flavored ones that are like bright, <laughs> bright orange? Yeah, and it's actually, um, they wanted to paint it Princeton orange because Miller was a Princeton graduate and he was a fanatic. And this was called Project Tiger and he wanted it to be Princeton Tiger orange, but... The paint store did not have Princeton orange, so it's painted Mack truck orange. <laughs> uh, so lastly, they needed a test pilot. So Miller brought on another Princeton guy. His name was Jack Olcott, and he worked with Princeton's aviation program. He was a glider pilot who had flown experimental aircraft in India as part of a university program. And he was absolutely not a helium head or a true believer at all. And the book describes him, in fact, as a Hessian. Now, he was a hired gun very methodical guy. Um, he had a car, like a sports car, and he kept a notebook in the glove compartment where he wrote down the mileage every time he filled his gas tank. It's another great detail. That's an engineer. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They decided to fly this thing at Na- uh, NAFAC, which is uh, today Atlantic City Airport, but then it was a military testing ground. And Miller was very concerned about what would happen if another company saw it and stole his idea. So it was all done in total secrecy. And in the book, it says he befrazzled himself with worry that sinister eyes would fall upon his creation. And so I could tell you exactly what happened when the test flew it, but there's someone a lot better qualified than me. And here he is. My name is Jack Alcott, and I was the test pilot for the Ariane 26. What was your first thought when you saw the Ariane 26 for the first time? It looked like a interesting vehicle. We went about flying the airplane in a highly cautious manner. Now, remember that before Olcott took to the air, every model of the Ariane 26 had crashed, but he had confidence he could fly the real thing because he had practiced using an ingenious workaround called a variable stability aircraft. Well, it's basically a regular aircraft, but it has had modifications to its flight control system. Normally, using some sophisticated autopilot to make the airplane fly as if it had different characteristics than the way it was designed. So a pilot would put a control input into the yoke, but instead of getting the type of response you would normally receive from a simple airplane like a Navion, the airplane responded as if it were something more sophisticated. Was it a pleasure to fly? Because we had fully put bounds on what we could or could not do with the aircraft. It flew the way we anticipated it. When we first attempted to get it aloft, we were not able to get the Ariane out of what's called ground effect. As you fly very close to the ground, the aircraft actually experiences something known as ground effect, which allows the airplane to fly with less power than it would require if it had been, let's say, a 1,000 or 2,000 feet in the air. The Ariane 26 was so underpowered that we could only get the aircraft into the air and fly maybe five or six feet off of the ground. We subsequently changed the propeller, changed a number of other aspects of the power plant, 
and were able to produce enough power with a small drone-like engine to actually fly the airplane in up and away flight. We must have had uh, about 20 flights, total of about 10 hours flying the airplane. The, only, the airplane only carried enough fuel for about 30 minutes of flight. In John McPhee's book, he describes how at one point when you were trying to break out of ground effect, they took a lot of things out of the plane. They took out half the fuel, they took out the fire extinguisher, and they took out the parachute. Uh, how, how did you feel when uh, when they started taking out the parachute? Were you okay with that? Oh, sure. The, <laughs> the thing about flying the airplane was I never pushed the airplane into an area where I felt the airplane would be unsafe. One of Olcott's challenges in flying the Ariane 26 was managing its yaw. In other words, how much it was going sideways through the air. Thanks to its unique design, if it had too much yaw, bad things could happen. When it did yaw, the highly swept wing, remember it was an aero body, it didn't really have wings, it just had a big body. Mm-hmm. When the body was moving through the air with a yaw angle, it would tend to roll at a force that was greater than the controls in roll, roll could correct that situation. If uncorrected, the aircraft would just roll out of control. And then it would fall from the sky, and Olcott would go with it, since there was no parachute. That's why John Kukon had so much difficulty flying the model. He couldn't see yaw. He had no way of seeing whether the aircraft was yawing or not. Olcott used an advanced instrument to see how much yaw he had. I've done a lot of glider flying, and typical thing glider pilots do is they put a piece of yarn on the windscreen. As long as the piece of yarn flows directly back over the windshield, you know you have zero yaw. If the piece of yarn flows to the right or to the left excessively, it's an indication that the airplane is experiencing significant yaw. We put a piece of yarn on the windscreen of the Ariane 26, and I, using the rudders, which were effective, I just kept the yaw angle zero. Tell me about that flight where you were finally able to get out of ground effect. Once the airplane got out of ground effect, it just continued to fly. And not very, not like a homesick angel, but it was well (laughs) behaved. So we were able to do the necessary tests. We would fly a rectangular pattern around the airport. The airplane behaved the way the experimental flights or the uh, evaluation flights in the Variable Spilling Navion indicated it would behave. The test flights gave Arian Corporation valuable information, including stability and handling characteristics, that could be used to create the behemoth airships of the future. We needed to know what the lift-to-drag ratio was of that particular shape in order to project what larger vehicles would look like. With all that information under our belt, all those data available, we felt that the program had been successful. If you remember the last line of John McPhee's book, he said, and Miller took the data and carried it around as if it were a lamp. Basically, that's what he was doing. He marketed the data from that flight. Do you think that the, but, the design has potential? Do you think that they could have built the giant versions that they wanted to? Yes, there's a lot to the concept. Miller put together a team of people who were pretty good engineers, and they took that design and they sold the studies of that design to the Navy. They sold them to DARPA, Defense Project Research Agency. They sold it to the 
Navy. They sold the, the studies to a, a number of people in the government. And actually, I guess I don't know how much money was spent on those studies, but Bill Miller kept the business going for quite some time. But he was just one individual. He had consultants working for him. And he didn't have any of the gravitas of a bigger company. So he probably was working against the Goliaths of the aerospace industry. And whether he ever had a chance to succeed is questionable. The fact is that Miller was a highly dedicated individual. He believed firmly in the Arion. He concept. He believed that if he worked the problem very hard, he would be rewarded for it. He devoted his life to about 40 years of his life to trying to make that program work. And to to a certain extent, you just have to admire his tenacity. Incidentally, I think John McPhee did a magnificent job. He took something which was something he just, he observed all these tests. He captured the tests as if we were taking a black-and-white photograph of what was happening. He was so descriptive in his presentation that I could do nothing but admire his skills and observation. Olcott admires McPhee tremendously, but he does have a minor quibble with the way he was described in the book. He referred to me as somebody who was studiously, insistently Hessian. <laughs> uh, he said yeah, he that. was, in a sense, a higher... I'm just reading from something here. He said he was, in a sense, a hired gun. He had no emotional attachment to the Arian project. He had no financial interest in the program. His technical curiosity had been aroused just enough to cause him to accept the job. That was a little bit of an exaggeration. I had an interest in the program because as somebody who likes to fly, flying something that hasn't been flown before is indeed a, a challenge. Well, maybe he, McPhee was right. My technical curiosity had been... But on the other hand, the opportunity to participate in an exciting program was a strong motivation. Although my financial reward for flying that vehicle was nil, I mean, it was something, but nothing significant. I've gotten an awful lot of mileage out of (laughs) the program since then because people remember the book. They remember the deltoid pumpkin seed, the book. Mm -hmm. Curiously, to a certain extent, Bill Miller although he very much appreciated the attention that Arianne got because of McPhee's book. In some ways, he thought that the public was missing the big picture. The public seemed to be interested in the book. Bill Miller felt they should be interested in the vehicle. This is a completely unique type of aircraft that's never been built before or since, and you're the only person in the world who ever flew it. Do you ever think about that? Not really, because the design was very uh, similar to what what NASA studied and what the Air Force studied called lifting bodies. Mm-hmm. In the latter part of the 60s, there was quite an effort to develop the space shuttle. The space shuttle was basically a large lifting body vehicle. So there were studies done. They weren't exactly like the Ariane 26, but they were bodies vehicles that were fat and they had some flat bottoms and maybe slightly curved tops and such. They weren't exactly like the Ariane 26. The Ariane 26 was unique. It had a length actually of 27 feet, yet the volume of the vehicle, what you could 
put in the vehicle, if you if the vehicle had enough power to lift it, was equal to what a Douglas DC-3 carried. So uh, this little machine was so fat and so bulbous that it actually had the interior volume of a Douglas DC-3. Interestingly, Miller may have had motivation to make the company successful beyond a desire to see airships take to the skies. Miller was a, a highly devout man, and he was a graduate of the Divinity School at Princeton. It really disturbed Miller that the people who had owned the company before Miller got involved were taking funds, selling stock to, in essence, I'm going to use, this is my term, widows and orphans, as opposed to people who perhaps were better equipped to take the risks of such an adventure. I think that disturbed him greatly. The One of the principals before Miller got involved was the minister of the Fourth Presbyterian Church in Trenton. And I, I think it disturbed him that that perhaps somebody of his uh, community had possibly, uh, maybe not deceived, but misled people who didn't have the, shouldn't have been misled. So he felt a very strong conviction to make that program successful. It might be easy to criticize Miller for spending so much time on a program that had such a low probability of success, but you cannot take anything away from the man's conviction that he was trying his very best to make it successful. One of the themes in McPhee's book is that many of the people on the project had this goal, had this dream of bringing back the large, rigid airship. And there's still people today who are trying to do the same thing. Do you think that the airships will ever return? When I was in graduate school, I spent a lot of time in blimps because of a program known as the Airborne Model Test Facility. We actually tested wind tunnel models by hanging them below a very specially modified blimp. So I had a lot of experience with the blimp community down at Lakehurst. The idea that there were people who were absolutely passionate about blimps is a true idea. There are such people. And there are also, correspondingly, people who think that blimps are absolutely useless. Uh, it seems to me that there were very hard to find people who were dispassionate about blimps. They were either 100% for them or 100% against them. Now, obviously, that's an exaggeration. But the people who got behind the area initially were helium heads. They were people who felt that their role in life was to bring back the rigid airship. Miller wasn't part of that group. Yeah, and I was wondering where you fell on that spectrum. Do you think that blimps are going to make a comeback? I think blimps, like most vehicles, have a purpose. You have to say, what is the mission? If the mission is flying over the Super Bowl and maybe a golf match, I think they're fantastic. I'm not sure whether in the long run they're going to be replaced by drones. In terms of vehicles that can go out and linger for long periods of time, such as blimps did in surveillance work, it's possible that they have a an application there. But I doubt seriously whether we'll duplicate the days of the Hindenburg or the Graf Zeppelin where people went from Europe to South America in blimps. For all that, Olcott says the Arian 26 was worthwhile. The data didn't change the direction of aviation development, but as a program, a unique small program, it was a successful program. Okay, well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. You're welcome. Bye. Okay, take care.
like Jack said, William Miller continued to promote the Arion for years. And as late as the 2010s, he was still trying to get the funding for another airship. And there's a 2010 profile of him in Aviation Magazine that describes him as working alone in a tiny office on Nassau Street. Arion did get some government contracts to design further versions of the Arion, which is also sometimes called the Dine Airship. And one of the ones that got the farthest along was this thing called the WASP, which was an unmanned surveillance platform that would have radar and could hover for 12 hours at a time. And he had sketches of it where he'd carry cargo or launch missiles and things like that. Uh, so he got, you know, this is how the company sustained itself for decades doing things like this. But none of them ever got off the drawing board. And William Miller died in 2017. So what happened to the company after that? Well, the company no longer exists because it was just him. Ugh, that's a shame. So I tried, one of the questions I had going into this was, what legacy did this leave behind? Like, was this just a total forgotten thing? Uh, so I looked in Google patent search for the word Arion. And you can find a lot of other inventors that cite the work of Arion Corporation. Uh, there are about 500 patents, including some by companies like Airbus and Boeing, Lockheed Martin, that all cite Arion in their patents. But exactly what it means to cite a patent, it, I'm not enough of a patent attorney to know the significance of that, but it does seem significant that they at least had been influenced somewhat by these uh, ideas. And as um, Olcott said, he sold the data to the military and to DARPA. And what they did with that data, I don't know. Maybe they, maybe that information they gathered in this test flight helped develop some later uh, aircraft. Well, yeah. I mean, you can't help but think about the stealth fighters, and there's some similarities. It's kind of like flip phones, right? Like <laughs> the people who uh, who work on the modern technology may not have expressly based their inventions off of it, but their familiarity with it maybe inspired them or, or had some basis in directing where they went with it. Mm-hmm. The basic idea of a hybrid airship that flies with both gas and aerodynamic lift actually has become a reality somewhat. And I don't know, again, if it was directly inspired by Arion, but there were a bunch of dis- different hybrid designs starting in the 70s, and they've had mixed success. And the latest example is uh, Lockheed Martin built a hybrid airship for the military called the P-791. It's 280 feet long, and it first flew in 2006 at Lakehurst, of all places. And... Just like the original Arion and the Arion 3, it has these three hulls side by side. And supposedly it can carry the same amount of cargo as a C-130 Hercules. Wow. And it takes off and lands like a hovercraft. It's got these engines on the bottom, and so it doesn't have, need a mooring mast to work. So a company called Hybrid Enterprises is actually selling this design as a cargo ship. And a French company called Hybrid Air Freighters um, has signed a letter of intent to buy 12 of them to use them to fly cargo to remote areas in Canada. I was just going to say, is as Amazon know about this? The, or Uber, <laughs> uh, Grubhub, Uber Eats? Because, <laughs> right. Uh, man, think what they could do with this. Yeah, pizza delivered by, a, by an airship. I don't know it, what a letter of intent means, if it, that will actually happen. There's another company that also signed a letter of intent for 12 more, so it, there is commercial interest in this if you're a helium head. Uh, maybe the, the airships will finally get their day in the sun. So that craft was actually built under a military contract under a program called the Long Endurance Multi-Intelligence Vehicle. 
And it was supposed to hover over Afghanistan where nobody could shoot it down and just offer wide area surveillance. But that never happened. The military canceled the program. But there was another design that came out of it from a competing British company called the HAV-304, which was also huge, 298 feet long, and it could fly 92 miles an hour. And that one was a little bit different, but it was also a hybrid airship. And it was sort of like bulbous. And instead of three um, holes, it had these two bulbous lobes. Being British, it, if you look at a picture of that one, it's uh, called the Flying Bum. <laughs> and it really does look like one. <laughs> yes, it does. So not quite as uh, slick as the other ones. So after the military program got canceled, a civilian company bought it. And they they were going to make it into like a cru- a pleasure cruiser called the Airlander 10. But that one crashed while it was landing in 2016. And there's a video of it. It just kind of like noses over into the ground and crunches the cockpit. Yeah, there's pictures, I think, of, of that. Yep. Yeah, and no one got hurt somehow. And it was repaired, but it had another mishap a year later when it broke free of its moorings and automatically deflated. And it was retired after that. Kind of looks like a flying scuba tank. It's really... <laughs> Bizarre. Yeah, so that's hybrid airships, but what about the Ariane 26 itself? Well, that does still have its fans. Um, If you look for Ariane 26 on YouTube, you can see videos of remote control aircraft enthusiasts who built their own versions of it and fly it around. And clearly it's aerodynamic because, you know, the models fly perfectly fine, it looks like. And the Ariane 26 itself, the full-size version, is still around. The Arion Corporation had it stored at a hangar at Trenton Robbinsville Airport. And before recording this podcast, I called the airport and the manager said it's still there, but it's in a state of legal limbo because of William Miller dying. So it's in his estate, I guess. And he had been trying to get it into a museum. And I think it would be great if they could put it in a museum somewhere because it's such a unique piece of local history. Oh, absolutely. Or just on display at, they're doing all these expansions at Trenton Mercer Airport. Like, why not? They'll never do it, but why not recognize this piece of history? Yeah, or like in Hamilton Park, they have all those planes that are like just on a plinth in the middle of the park. They could just, well, maybe it's too fragile to do that. Or it doesn't have enough guns. (laughs) Yeah, it wouldn't be appreciated. But anyway, that's the story of the Ariane 26. I think it's a pretty amazing story that nobody knows unless they've read read the book. Yeah, and I have to, I mean, if someone's listening to this has never been to Robbinsville Airport, we are not talking about a place that United would, would be found or even much more than prop planes. It's a very, very local airport. And the idea that this piece of history was just sitting there somewhat neglected, kind of mind-blowing. Well, maybe someone will listen to this and uh, give it its proper place in history. Hey, See if you can buy it and bring it to its uh, proper uh, recognition, or maybe you'll be inspired by it and you'll want to build an Arion 27. Yeah, maybe maybe we'll become, you'll become a helium head. That's right. All right, well, thanks for listening. Uh, Forgotten History is a production of Community News Service. If you like our show, please subscribe, leave a five-star review on iTunes or whatever podcast player you use, and thanks again for listening. Take care.